needs to get pushed. The camera button. So. Okay. Thank you, Melissa. No problem. No problem. Retreat. 
Seniors by the Sea, a very uh, wonderful uh, time coming up, uh, Saturday, January 18th. Those times are so well planned and so good. I certainly hope if it pertains to you, you might consider being part of that. You'll see the children's ministry and um, adult classes all start up in February, so we're just a few weeks away from that. On the back side, um, a wonderful part of what we work toward and Chili Cook-Off and a number of other events contribute to uh, youth scholarships, and so one of those major events is Youth uh, Winter Retreat that's taking place um, in another week. Winter Camp is what it's called at Camp Pondo. So thank you for the ways in which throughout the year you contribute to making that even a possibility. And finally, um, you know that we have just a wonderful children's program here, and registration is opening up. January 15th, so just a couple days away. And that's registration for the kids' classes. We actually try and put a cap on classes. We don't try and cap kids coming. We will have other things if we um, run short of space, but in terms of our capacity for a couple of those classes. So if you have friends or your own or relatives, just a reminder that some of those classes fill up quickly with the number of kids that are interested in joining in what we do. Um, off to the far left side, I think is where you'll find it, are the uh, notebooks. If you're sitting on the aisle, we'd love for you to pick that up and make sure that gets started this morning. But in the midst of doing that, I would love to encourage you to stand up, pass the peace of Christ uh, to one another. Let somebody know that you're glad they are here. So if you would stand with me, and let's pass the peace of Christ.
The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all say glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with shalom. There is strength in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
as to however God might lead us. Friend, invite us into a time of prayer together. This morning, Lord, we are grateful for so many things that seem so obvious and yet aware that there are so many things that miss our sight, the ways in which you have watched over us and protected, blessings and privileges, resources beyond what we certainly deserve, and opportunities far greater than anything we could have created on our own. And so this morning, grateful for the privilege of the people we have had the joy of intersecting with in terms of our journey, people's lives who have touched us and ours and theirs. Thank you, Lord, for the resources that give us sustenance, food, and shelter. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together in freedom to express our faith, to live in a place where we are not afraid for our faith expressions. For it is easy in the midst of having received so many blessings to recognize that there are many who do not have the same kind of privileges and resources. Help us not to be blind to that. Help us not to be deaf to their voice. And not simply the need that exists for which we might make a difference, but also, Lord, for the voice that has something to teach us 
we need to be recipients of those who have a perspective on you and a perspective on living that we've not considered because our circumstances have not called us to that posture, have not demanded that we hear it or see it. So this morning, Lord, will you give us a heart that's more willing to hear, more willing to see the ways in which our biases, our prejudices, the way in which we participate in things that harm others, even though we are unaware, will you raise our level of awareness and teach us, cause us to grow, stretch us, help us to find somewhere in the struggle, the seed of grace and truth that can put roots down deep into our souls that we might continually be changing and growing into your likeness. May not only our gathering on a Sunday morning be an outpost of heaven, but may every place and person with whom we come in contact be an opportunity used well to be purveyors of your shalom, and your goodness, and your grace. So for the people in our midst who are facing challenges, huge challenges, Lord, new chapters in their life or new circumstances that have changed what they thought life was going to be like, Lord, will you hear our prayer, be present with them, may your spirit provide healing both of bodies that are in need of repair as well as spirits that are discouraged and depressed. And Lord, if it's possible that we could be part of that healing process, help us to step into those places and take action. Thank you for this church, the way they have stepped in so many places. May we continue to look for ways for your shalom to be passed along. Not just in a greeting on Sunday morning, but in the way we live our lives with one another. For that we long, for that we pray, for that we offer ourselves. And to that end, may the prayer you taught us to pray lead us in that direction. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. 
He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering whip he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the highlands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from the prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. The word of God.
that we have up front every week um, part of the um, appointments of this room, an altar on either side of me, an altar that holds great significance in the context of our faith tradition, an altar that speaks to us of a tradition that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, where the altar was used as a place of sacrifice for the um, offerings and gifts of the people, the priests, the actions that they would take on behalf of the people, offering burnt offerings, wave offerings, uh, offerings of peace, that would take place on the altar just outside of the temple. In our modern day, we have altars that are inside that represent something that's far different than the sacrifice of animals that was done over and over again because we believe that Christ came and offered a sacrifice once and for all that satisfied the need for sacrifices his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf then became for us our salvation. And so altars for us have become a place where we pray, where we meet God and meet ourselves. There is no doubt that we can make an altar wherever we are, but it becomes for us a very important, significant image and opportunity to be at an altar seeking salvation, to be at an altar seeking the infilling of the Holy Spirit, to be at the altar seeking reconciliation or recommitment in somebody's life, being at the altar and offering confession of things that have drawn us away from God would also propose that sometimes we're at the altar simply longing to hold someone's hand. Let me spend the next few minutes explaining what I mean by that. I'd like to take us in our readings this morning through the four passages that are part of our journey. I don't want to make a mad rush through them. I do want to tell you the readings that we're looking at. We've talked about the readings that we have each week, that there are four that come out of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And during this month, I am attempting to find a thread that weaves through all four of those readings. So we have one that are, we are um, working on that is the text for this uh, morning's message. It's Isaiah. It is... Chapter 42, and specifically looking at verse 6, though the reading is larger than that. The gospel reading, as you heard read by Doug, is Matthew chapter 3, and it is verses 13 through 17. I believe it is the story of Jesus' baptism by John. Heard the reading that comes out of Psalm, Psalm 29. Rick read for us, and then Rick sang for us, and Rick moved the microphones for us, I think. Rick, thank you for all the work that you've done for us this morning. I appreciate that. 
a very majestic song of praise and honoring our Creator. And then the passage in Acts, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, verses 34 through 43. This is the story of Peter going to the home of Cornelius, the Roman soldier, and the Holy Spirit coming and blessing that house. Those are the four passages. Last week, I attempted to take them in what we thought would be chronological order. It's not the case this week. I would like to follow from the psalm to the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew, come back to the Isaiah passage, and then finish with the story of Cornelius. So go with me, if you would, to the psalm, Psalm 29, which is an incredibly majestic song. I love the intentional power with which Rick read that passage. It was emphatic. It was punctuated. It was a declaration of the truth of who God is. And that's the language of that song. It speaks about God's power, God's might, that all of creation shakes under the presence of God's word. It speaks about the trees of Lebanon, the thunderous claps of lightning that the voice of God brings about dramatic things in our world. There are some ways in which this feels like a 3,000-year-old version of the modern-day praise chorus of Chris Tomlin called Our God. Our God is awesome. Our God is power. Our God is might. Our God is healer. There is no God greater than our God. That's the message out of Psalm 29. Our God's the biggest God. It is a powerful declaration in an ancient world where there were many gods, and the gods were often attributed to things that were bigger than we could control. The God of the sun, the God of the wind, the God of the great waters. In fact, there are ancient, ancient writings of old cultures that have very similar language to this song. It was a practice of paying honor to the things that were bigger than we are. And the truth is, even though we understand a lot of things better than we have in the past, we understand stars and their distance and planets and how they move around large bodies. We understand expansion of the universe. We understand wind patterns 
And we have computer models that can now predict 10 days in advance exactly what kind of coastal winds we're going to have and whether or not it will be a great day for sailing or a great day for surfers or a disastrous day for farmers or whatever the case might be. It doesn't mean that we control it just because we understand it. And so we still have written into all kinds of documents that give us an out if there is an act of God that takes place. So if you're taking a flight from here to the East Coast and the airlines messes up on human error, they might give you a free ticket to reimburse you for a night's lodging and maybe try and get you to give up your seat and come across with all kinds of benefits to do that. But if there's an act of God that stops the flight, you don't get anything <laughs> because we can't control that. There is still an acknowledgement that there are acts of God that are bigger than we can figure out. I love how a very secular economy still uses that, though they may not use it in any other fashion, but as a way to get out of paying you something, oh yes, we believe in God in those moments. <laughs> so this is a song that says, this is God, God moves, and the earth shakes. It is a powerful proclamation that there is something bigger than we are, as if we didn't already know that. It is fascinating, though, how the psalm closes. It closes with a word of peace from God. This stands in contrast to the worship of the God of the sun, or the worship of the God of the oceans, or the waters, the God of lightning and thunder that other cultures would worship. Deities who it was presumed that they were out for our destruction, not for our best interest. Here is the proclamation that our God, greater than all others, is out for our peace. Well, there's the seed of something powerful in a faith tradition that is carried for so many years. That God might actually be for us as opposed to against us. Now, I know some of the circumstances some of us have faced. There have been times where we've wondered where God is, if there is a God that is for us. It's one of the reasons that the Hebrew people had this tradition we've talked about over and over again, of walking backwards into the future so that you could look back and see the ways in which God has been for us, so that in the midst of circumstances that would cause us to question that assertion, we could look back and say, oh, but 
Look at the ways in which God has provided over and over again in our past. May that give us the strength to move forward into our future. We move to the gospel message, chapter 3 of Matthew, where we find in these verses 13 through 17, Jesus coming out to John the Baptist, his cousin, to be baptized by him. I don't want to step past something that strikes me over and over again. I mentioned it at the Christmas Eve service when we, um, when I had the privilege with the children of reading the book, The Nativity. Um, the Nativity is simply the story of the birth of Jesus. The drawings are what are so fascinating to me. The drawings have angels that are, are, are wearing unlaced boots, and and it, it shows some of the very normal things of Mary hanging up the laundry on a line, and, and there are angel pictures where they're just kind of hanging in the trees and, and looking over as they're clutching one of the limbs, and the shepherds that come and look at the baby Jesus just have bed head, and the hair's going everywhere, and it's a mess, and these beautiful watercolor drawings speak to the earthiness of Scripture. I feel like many of us grew up when the only translation that was ever read and used was the King James Version. I have verses I still have memorized that are very solidly King James Version and they're probably the only truly faithful verses I have memorized because they are the King James Version. <laughs> With quite a few thou's and um, words that are not typically used in everyday conversation. And what was never conveyed to me was, at least my understanding, that when this translation was authorized, it was authorized to put into the vernacular of the common people. That though it sounds somewhat foreign to our ears, the intent was that the everyday person would have access to the sacred scripture in their everyday language. sounded so sterile, so cleaned up, and even things that were kind of earthy, the words had a way of making feel like, me feel like I, I'm drawn to this, but I can never live up to this, because this, well, you know, this is, um, this is just pure. And it is. But one of the things that makes it so pure is that it is so earthy. John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness, wearing animal skins, eating locust, going after honey and trees. It's not going to bonds. 
and find something in a little bear jar thing and squeeze it out. He's digging this out of trees. He's got sticky hands. He has animal clothes. He's living by the Jordan River proclaiming the good news. And people have to walk out to the river to hear it. And I'm going to walk into the Jordan River and get baptized. It's earthy. The Bible is filled with stories that are not cleaned up. They're not sterilized. It's the power of the gospel that the world we live in has texture and feeling and struggle and growth. It is, it is a place to go that should remind us of life itself. And so this earthy John sees his cousin coming and says, oh, no, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, we need to fulfill all of scripture, all of righteousness. And there are some who believe that that phrase, all of righteousness, is taken right out of Isaiah 42, verse 6. And other references that other gospel writers speak about when they speak about the baptism of Jesus. That it draws on passages from the Old Testament that identify this one as God's servant. About three years ago, instead of speaking on all four of these passages, I just used this particular passage out of Matthew chapter 3. And one of the things at that point in time that just jumped off the page to me, and I just mentioned it again, kind of in passing, but it still resonates with me. That the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am pleased. The unique power of that statement is that Jesus hasn't done anything yet. This statement of the Spirit, heaven breaking open, hearing this voice, this notion of being pleased with Jesus, it's not to say that he hasn't had many years of living. We have stories of him being in the temple. As a, as a young boy and speaking with the teachers of the law, but we know virtually nothing about the years that lead up to this moment. There's been no healing, no transformation of water into wine. There's been no opportunity to preach on the hillside or call the disciples to him. There's been no interaction at the well with the woman at the well. There's not been the opportunity to do what happened with Lazarus. So all of these things that you would think at the end of that, God would then speak and say, this is my son, and I'm really pleased. No, it happens here. 
in this moment. I, I am moved at the prospect that God would speak that powerful phrase over us. Not looking for us to have accomplished everything that we thought was going to take place in our life or figure it all out or have it all done. But just to reach into our hearts and hold us. To that end, I take you to Isaiah chapter 42. In this verse 6, um, you'll notice at the very beginning, it speaks about righteousness, fulfilling all righteousness. It then goes on to say, and I will hold your hand. Here's what's fascinating about I will hold your hand to me. Is that we have not only in the psalm, but also in this passage from Isaiah, earlier in the chapter, in the first five verses, it talks about the power and might of God and of the one who has been chosen. It is God's power, God's might, God's strength in the servant. It is all the majesty and wonder of Psalm 29, the God that's bigger than we can control, the God who forms the universe, the God who makes the earth move, the God who forms the cedars. This is the God who then says, and I will hold you, and you will become my covenant. You will become the way by which others have their eyes open. You will become the way by which others hear of these amazing truths. You, I'll hold your hand. I'll give you my righteousness. You then become my representation. This notion of God holding our hand, that reminds me, I've used this example once in the years that I've been here, but I also remember I used this story, the very first message I ever preached in Springfield, Illinois. I said, in that one message, everything I knew. <laughs> but I was recalling this image of being a, a little boy when my family took us, we lived in Cleveland, to a state park that was just outside of Cleveland. And in this state park, they had this wonderful creek that went down to um, a pond that, for lack of a better phrase, was a swimming hole. And my mom had brought a picnic lunch, and the four of us, my older sister, my mom, and my dad, we were there. It was like the perfect beaver cleaver family outing right there <coughs> in the park and outside of Cleveland. But it was a wonderful snapshot, my, my journey as a child, very, very fortunate to grow up in the home in which I grew up. And as mom was setting out the blanket and beginning to set out the picnic stuff, 
I was anxious and interested about heading down to the water, and Mom told my dad to take me down there, and he more than willingly did. We walked down this little incline down to this pond. I, in my mind's eye, it was enormous, but my guess is that the pond itself was probably no larger than two of these rooms put together. And at one end, there was a retaining wall, a retaining wall that was actually the perfect height for me. My hand could rest right on that retaining wall. And you came into the pond by that retaining wall that obviously kept the water from going out that side. I stepped into the water. I wasn't particularly distracted by the temperature. I was noticing that there were a bunch of kids that were out in the deep water just splashing, splashing each other jumping up and down, having a good time. I was paying attention to my dad, and I had my dad's hand. My dad's hand, and I'm holding it up like this because that's how tiny I was. My dad's hand, and one hand on the retaining wall. And we stepped out, and it got a little bit deeper, and it got up to where it had gotten up to my trunks. My trunks were now getting wet. It got up to my waist, and you just kind of suck in the waist as the cold water hits that waist. And then it got a little bit deeper, and it came up about mid-high, my dad's standing right there, and dad said, do you want to go out a little bit further? And I said, no, I think I'm okay right here. <laughs> and I watched and looked, and we stood there for a while. He asked me again, you sure you don't? I've got your hand. You sure you don't want to go out a little further? He said, no, I never let go of the retaining wall. Hello to it the whole time. It's one of my earliest memories. And I watched the kids play it. I, I don't know how old they were to me. They looked like they had to have been high schoolers, but I don't know. My dad was so patient just standing there. He was waiting, he was waiting. Finally, we walked all the way across to the far end of the retaining wall. I had been in the swimming bowl, and I was ready to go back and have a bologna sandwich, so we walked our way back up. M Mom said to us, did you not go swimming? I said, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at my dad, which explained why my mom had asked, because my dad's swim trunks were still dry. <laughs> we had not even made it to where his swim trunks had come. I had lived so far beneath the capacity of my father. <laughs> In that moment, I was perfectly satisfied. I had my dad's hand. But I certainly missed out on the kind of afternoon that those kids that are out a little bit deeper were enjoying. I could have held Dad's hand and gone a whole lot deeper. I could have also gone beyond holding Dad's hand and still been under my Dad's watchful eye. But I had a tough time letting go of the retaining wall. Here, Isaiah. This writer during the time of exile with the people incredibly discouraged. The power and majesty of God is proclaimed by the writer of this passage. And then it moves from the acknowledgement of the servant of God to this statement. I will have my righteousness in you, and I will hold your hand. <clears throat> With
without saying it, there is in here this powerful notion of fear not. Drop your anxieties. You've got this because I've got you. The power of this passage is not only in God's encouragement and patience with us as we hold on to every retaining wall in our life, afraid to let go because can God? I don't know. I'm pretty certain I can't. So I'm going to hold on both to the retaining wall and then as extra security, I'll hold on to God as well. And to miss out on the deeper waters of the journey of faith. The waters that take us into places that test us, stretch us, invigorate us, and lead us to places of joy and celebration, accomplishment, but way back at the beginning, while we're still holding on to the retaining wall, we have a father who says, oh, I'm pleased with you. My power, I'm doing a work in you. I'll hold your hand. But here's the powerful statement, the end of verse 6. You, though, are my covenant. This proclamation of the news that's for all people, I'm putting on you. So that takes us to Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 to 43, where we have Peter going to the home of Cornelius. Both of these people have a whole lot to lose. Peter is risking being thrown out of his faith tradition. He's going to the home of an unclean person, a Gentile. He's going to share food with a Gentile. He's going to pronounce God's favor and ask for the Holy Spirit with a Gentile and a Gentile's family. Talk about letting go of the retaining wall. It's as if Peter is jumping in the deep end and saying, Oh God, I feel like you just let go of my hand, but I'm trusting you're still watching. And in this moment, we also have Cornelius, a person of faith, trying to figure out this faith journey in a world that has so many different philosophies and religions to offer, believing deeply that something is different about the world in which he lives because he's heard of this one they call the Christ. A person of high rank and order. A person who is inviting someone in to talk about the lordship kingship of Jesus the Christ. His vocation is at risk. His status and prestige at risk. Two people coming together, letting go of the retaining walls of their life, stepping into a place 
that's unknown to both of them. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit descends and pours out God's Spirit on them both. And they worship together. They pray together. They hold one another together. So I come full circle to what I said. We come to an altar for salvation, for rededication, for confession, for infilling of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we come simply because we long to have somebody hold our hand. It is God who says, I take your hand, but then turns around and says, you are my covenant for you to take someone else's hand. To hold somebody in their moment that also, whether you realize it or not, is your moment. It's never a one-way street. It's like Peter and Cornelius coming together. They both took a risk into the deep waters of faith and found God's spirit in that leap. I'm gonna invite you to stand if you would. I'm gonna offer a prayer on your behalf. make this awkward for anyone, but it may be this morning that reaching out and um, holding the hand of somebody beside you is a way that you gesture and attempt to let go of the retaining wall and walk a little bit deeper into the waters of faith, knowing that God meets us through other people. You may not be comfortable with that. You may not be standing next to somebody. But you're certainly welcome at this altar where many of us would offer our hand to hold yours and you ours. Acknowledge your power, 
ask us to be your representation of all of those things. That you've come to offer peace and that, that Lord, somehow we could contribute to that. We could be your peace, your peacemakers.
Hey, how are you? Good, how are you?